2: I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal Elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work we do and carry this into our conversation today. Good morning, you're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, Culture and identity. I am Sharika hela Ahead on the show, we're asking, what are our responsibility when it comes to sharing those stories of vulnerable communities and those who have been displaced? What are the ways we can understand one story to disrupt, to uncover the truth of so many more that go unnoticed, untold? Our show today takes us from Sri Lanka to Queensland to the small town of Bilalela, tracing flows of displacement of a Tamil family you probably heard a lot of during the 2022 election. Nades, Priya, and their daughters Kopika and Danika may be known to you as the nadez family. A family that was thrust into national political spotlight as they experienced the harsh violence of our asylum-seeking system, but dehumanized in a process of political gain. Meanwhile, experiencing the arduous and stress and trauma of just trying to make a home in this colony. We honor their story today and thank them for giving the permission to share on Race Matters. Our guests today are co-producers and creatives of an audio series that's just been released, J. Ui and Taneshtilandaraja. They're behind the podcast called You Have Been Told a Lie. It's a show that traces the near 10-year journey of the Nadasinggalam family and the subsequent battle to stay here. I chatted to them earlier this week on what it was like to spend two years with the Nadasinggalam family, Together, we explored what it is to build relationships across language, culture, and geographies, to unveil truths, and what we can learn from the generosity of one family's story to unravel the systems of immigration and how we are all implicated in processes of displacement. We're talking to the creators of a new podcast series called You've Been Told a Lie. Jay Ui is a podcast creator and producer, and alongside Ilam Tamu lawyer and creative Dinesh Dilan They set out to create a space for the Not A family to tell the story of seeking asylum on their own terms, dispelling the xenophobic media headlines and to bring forward the tension and complexities of their story and to place it in the heart of many, many stories of those who were seeking asylum from Sri Lanka and beyond. I began by asking to peer behind the veil of the series, how they came to this work and the current ethics of telling this story. We're talking through this incredible and deep podcast series that the both of you have co-created called You Have Been Told A Lie. We're going to be getting into the depths of it throughout our conversation, but I want you to take us back to the beginning. Why did you want to tell this particular story?
3: I guess by way of background, I'm Tamil. um grew up in Toronto. Um, Some of my parents were refugees to Canada and um, I was heavily informed in my upbringing about Canada's version of multiculturalism, I guess Tamil identity and what that looks like in the diaspora and how it evolves differently in different parts of the world. So that's always been front of mind since coming to Australia. In 2018, um, I received my citizenship in Australia after very many ups and downs as you go through the process, as many people do. And literally within hours of me getting my citizenship, Priya Nadez and the girls, there was a second attempt at deportation for them, and it made me really think about the differences in our journeys. And because my parents fled for the exact same reasons that Priya Nadez did, um, but due to you know timing, channels, different nations, um, and Canada having more of a humane asylum seeker policy really created different journeys and outcomes. And so that kind of piqued my interest and made me want to dive deeper into what made Australia so different. Jay was already working on his series Shoes Off, which explores stories of Asian Australian identity. Um, So i would worked with him before um, on some things and kind of pitched this story as more of a one-off episode kind of discussing why this one nation Rust Belt town in rural Queensland was advocating for a brown family that looked like me. So that's really what the seed was for the story.
1: I was like, that's a really interesting juxtaposition of um, the politics of this town and the actions that are coming from it. And I thought it'd be a fun story to explore just that, just that one little thing. And then it kind of ballooned as we got a little bit of funding, a little bit of support, and we were like, let's make it a series, a big thing.
2: We're getting to the heart of what this is, is that it's important to acknowledge that this isn't just a story or a podcast, but we are kind of talking about the lives of a family, a family that has undergone or experienced the apparent violence of our state and people who were kind of thrust into a national spotlight and used as political ploys. And can you share with that how you were invited into this family's life to tell their story?
1: I guess it started with an introduction to the journalist who was covering this family's story quite closely. And through her, we got an introduction to the campaign team who were fighting for this family to come home, the people who were largely from Biloela, um, and then from there, after, I guess, chatting with them, getting to know them, uh, doing interviews, we, we never expected that we'd be able to talk to the family, but we sort of raised it as a, hey, the election's coming up. Um, we just feel like it'd be good to get a sense check from the family how they're feeling for the 2022 federal election, which will literally determine their fate. Um, is it okay if we talk to them? And they thankfully said yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> introduced us to them.
3: I think with the family as well, the home-to-billow team was quite guarded, understandably, because a lot of journalists would approach them to get, you know, a headline or a quick clickbaity article to kind of discuss the political football that they had become without really having a vested interest in their lives and the outcome um, while they're in a very vulnerable situation. When we started this story and speaking to the Home to Billow campaign team and the family, they were still in detention. And so obviously their approach made sense, but as we built rapport and trust with the family, I think they kind of understood that we weren't here for you know, a quick headline um, and really wanted to do their story justice and kind of take it out of the one-dimensional humanitarian lens that their story had often been discussed in the mainstream Australian media.
1: I can tell you about the first call we had with them. So we're all on this, like, group Zoom call with the campaign team. Nadez and Priya are there, and we're there. And they sort of introduce us. And then Tanesh starts talking to them in Tamil. And then they just start talking with each other in Tamil for about 15 minutes. And the rest of us are just sitting there like, oh, this is really nice, but we have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the challenges
3: for Priya and Nadez had been that often... Their voices were through the conduits of other people being translated into English, um, quick press statements and things like that. And when I was able to chat with them, this is one of the first times where they'd just be able to kind of monologue uh, without me having to prompt for specific answers. And that really set the tone for what all of our conversations would be like over the year and a half that we spent with them, where uh, I would, jump on a Zoom call or a phone call and then they would just talk, which is really, really good because they were allowed to kind of shape the story that they wanted to tell from their perspective and the things that mattered to them in their eyes.
2: Mm, That's really fascinating to hear about, like what it is to create spaces where people can share their stories maybe with some sense of autonomy in other aspects of their lives where that's not occurring. Um, I'm curious, particularly because there's some quite dark and distressing content in the series, what were your kind of like ethical and care considerations in going into this? Maybe we'll stay with you, Tanesh.
3: Yeah, I, I think for me, I actually let Priya and Nades kind of guide the conversations and what they wanted to share. And there are definitely moments where particular things They had articulated to me that, you know, some of the things that were framed in other articles was not necessarily the way they wanted it to be framed. And so we took care in making sure that they had final say in how things were portrayed and what we focused on. And so we judged that. I think for us, it was less about what we wanted them to say and more about what they wanted to say to us. And then we kind of framed the podcast around that
1: journey.
2: Mm. And what was that like for you, Jay, as like producing and audio editing the piece?
1: I guess the main thing I wanted to make sure was that what we were presenting was accurate. And so we went through a lot of checks with various people, basically just made a list of everything that we say in the podcast and said, is this accurate to what you know? Obviously, you know, everything they've been through, uh, the amount that they've been moved around, like the amount of trauma has an impact on recollection and memory. And Priya like, brings that up as something she's aware that Nadez you know, doesn't have a great memory for things. And so there was like a couple of things that we were like, oh, I'm not sure like weeper North Queensland, weeper Adelaide.
4: Yeah.
3: There's a moment where uh, we were speaking with Nadez and he was just telling us about his journey from Christmas Island to eventually Bilawila. And as a part of that journey, he said he was in this detention center in Adelaide. Um, or right outside of Adelaide called Viva Camp. And I was like, okay. And then we're trying to do our research, trying to find this camp. Just could not locate it. And then we started asking the Home to Build team, and they're like, oh, this is the first time we're hearing of this. And so those parts were like really, really interesting. And eventually, we subsequently realized that he was actually talking about WIPA, which is a camp in North Queensland. As I was talking to Priya about this, she was just talking about all the times where she preferred to... Be at the hospital and medical appointments with Gopika and Dharanika because Nadez obviously cared and loved his children, but he had a hard time remembering medications and treatment that they had received over the years, especially mm-hmm. due to the journey that they had had. And so, because of that, she was just much more precise um, and was also much more of a fighter than Nadez was. He was much more accommodating and not wanting to rock the boat too much, whereas she had the perspective of, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that my kids are taken care of.
2: If you just tuned in, you're listening to Race Matters. We're hearing from creators and co-producers of a new audio series called You've Been Told a Lie, Jay and that was the two of them reflecting on the creative and political and kind of philosophical process of what it was to bring forward the story of the not a single family who have been seeking asylum across the course of almost 10 years. We're going to be delving more into the chat I had with Tanesh and Jay and unraveling some of those complexities of what it is to move through trauma, to tell stories of distress and using storytelling as a way to bridge across humanity and empathy and reimagine worlds where people can access safety, affirmation and connection. Here's more from my conversation with them.
3: He had the Peter Dutton statement, for example, where he had claimed that Nadez had left Australia a couple of times and that they weren't really fleeing persecution the way the team was advocating for. And those types of statements often went unchecked. And when they did go checked or cor- when they were corrected, that didn't obviously get the same kind of attention. And so we wanted to make sure that whenever we could, when Priyanides had said something, it was corroborated by multiple people. We substantiated it with reports and... Um, journalists, academics, experts uh, to really give weight to what they were saying. And that's part of the unfortunate reality uh, when we're telling the stories of people who are fleeing persecution, which is that there's often doubt. Um, And so we want to just kind of add that weight to what they were saying um, and telling their story.
2: Were there any challenges that came up as you were trying to do that?
1: Uh, There were bits that we sort of uh, made a bit more vague because we couldn't find out exactly who or what happened. Tanesh did these really lengthy interviews, especially with Priya, because she would just talk and she would speak for five minutes about something that ended up being like 30 seconds in the podcast. And so it's like, we're making these decisions of what lines do we include from her that still encapsulate the action or the feeling of what's happening, um, but don't like misrepresent what she's saying. So that's the approach that we took. We had a person who helped us with translations and she got to hear the full bit and um, helped us like put it into words that's a bit more conversational for the podcast.
3: I think that was probably one of my favorite parts of um, creating this podcast in that I speak Tamil and have grown up speaking Tamil, but uh, in some ways it's almost very childish. Um, the way you speak to your parents and friends and whatever else, um, our friend Nirja, who's, who's actually worked as an interpreter for asylum seekers on Christmas Island, as well as other detention centers. She had approached it in a very different way. And this is the first time that I was able to spend time with someone really dissecting language. So when Priya and Nadez had said things. I would take the most literal translation of it because I had done my own version of translations. And then me and Nirja would then have these long conversations about what are they actually trying to say? How is that contextually informed in their journey? So that was a really interesting part of the, I guess, development process.
2: Yeah, I think it really speaks to, I guess, the medium of audio storytelling and those types of decisions you make of like painting a nuanced picture but also what should remain sacred to that recording that maybe some of our audiences don't hear but we know that us as producers or us as a community have been able to spend time with that in a more complicated way. I wanted to pick up on some things that you've been mentioning Dinesh like obviously this is a story that is quite close Mm. to your one and like you said very different contexts when I guess thinking through the care and ethics of you know what you've just been talking about what was it like for you to be telling the story of you know another Tamil family seeking asylum here?
3: In some ways it was challenging um, just hearing obviously very distressing heartbreaking stories um, one that A lot of people are familiar with um and but in other ways it was also i wouldn't say comfortable but i was used to hearing stories like that just because growing up in toronto in the neighborhood that i grew up in which was like a black and brown Tamil immigrant neighborhood um where there's significant waves of migration um and refugees all throughout the 90s and the early 2000s i was just really accustomed to hearing these stories What's funny is like just last year, um, I was back home in Toronto visiting family and I had met up with my grade four ESL teacher. And she had kept this book of letters that we had all written in grade four in our ESL classes. And I think the question was, oh, why did you come to Canada or something like that? And there's like little illustrations. And we're all talking about really horrific situations where we're talking about like war and bombs and airplanes and things like that. And these are all like seven and eight year olds describing pretty, uh, distressing situations. And my ESL teacher was just kind of like, Oh yeah, they would write these crazy things, um, on these papers. And then be like, okay, I'm going to go play dragon ball Z now. And it was just such a way of life for us. And part of our collective consciousness at that time that, this didn't feel as distressing as it has been for other people. But I know that having spoken to Niroja and a few of the other Tamil people who were involved in the production of this podcast, whether, whether they were lawyers that we spoke to or um, advocates, experts, they continually recounted the fact that when they were working with asylum seekers, is quite challenging for them because and re-traumatizing. And having to pull yourself out of that situation, separate yourself from the story that is being told and not get into that mindset was quite difficult but I think they had developed I I guess a way of navigating those situations to kind of ensure that they didn't burn out from constantly hearing these stories again and again and making sure that they were able to remain resilient um, which is a tricky word to use anyways but yeah
2: Yeah, I have to admit as a listener i had some trepidation going in and um i i am also tamil and like my parents came here like um yeah with like different kind of migratory statuses i didn't grow up around a lot of tamil like tamil diasporic people but i do know with my family and even to this day they use that kind of euphemistic term "old oh, the troubles mm. Remember the Troubles, like, oh, we don't really want to talk about the Troubles, but yes, this happened in this year, and we'll be quite vague about it, and I guess that was kind of on my mind when, like, beginning to listen to your series, like, how am I entering this as someone also who isn't neutral, I guess, as an audience, but I was thinking a lot through, I guess, how telling these stories can also be an act of healing as well. I don't know if that resonates for either of you.
3: I think for me, I would, I would say yes. And I, I've had the opportunity to kind of be involved in a couple of different projects over the last few years that have allowed me to get that sense of catharsis where you have audiences that are not necessarily familiar with these stories bearing witness to the horrors that occurred in Sri Lanka. Um, specifically with the story of Priya and the um, the notion of Tamil Tigers, um, who were I guess, a resistant movement in Sri Lanka, for people who don't know, um, can be quite a polarizing topic, both outside the Tamil community as well as within the Tamil community. Um, and there's lots of varied opinions about it. Um, but there is a dominant narrative of Tamil tigers being terrorists and we're not advocating for the Tamil tigers or anything like that by any means but we definitely want to complicate that story to give justice to the story of Priya Anades and why Anades would have been involved in the tigers, why pummels were fleeing um, and allowing people to kind of uh, understand that story I think was quite healing because after we released the podcast so many people did not know what was happening in Sri Lanka, were not aware, and walked away with a lot more insight. I think Jay himself, um guilty.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I I didn't know that it existed. I mean I, I'm just generally not very well read. Uh but even just talking to a lot of friends, like they might have had some inkling that it had happened, but a lot of people just had no idea we were able to share that.
3: I think the, the thing that you're also fighting against is articles in Vogue or The Lonely Planet talking about what a great, beautiful touristy place Sri Lanka is, and sure there may be some truth to that, but it completely erases what is going on for a lot of people in that country.
2: Yeah, this kind of brings me to a question which I guess sounds simple, but it's about you know, the title of the show, you have been told. A lie it's provocative and catchy what for each of you is the lie in this situation maybe I'll start with you Jay coming into this with quite a different cultural context
1: yeah um I mean I think there are so many lies anything from us thinking that the system to process asylum seekers is fair or if everyone goes through the same system they're gonna get the same outcome or the idea that um, boat people are swamping our country, stealing jobs, all that sort of rhetoric are like lies that we're told. Um, it couldn't be like detention centers, there's so much money that goes into them.
3: Yeah, I think there's a few things that come to mind. Um, like as Jay said, when you zoom out and look at the larger picture, what you've been told a lie reveals is that there's a ton of lies and a ton of misinformation. and particular language that's been deliberately used to kind of create a very particular picture around what safety for Australia means, what security for Australia means, and how we perceive asylum seekers more broadly. And this has been going on for decades. that's kind of culminated in this moment. But more specifically, like there's also this idea that people fleeing horrific circumstances, whether that be conflict, war, economic, precarious situations, that it all happens in a vacuum and that's very disconnected from us. But what we come to understand is that as you listen through the podcast, Australia, the United States and other countries have had very particular strategic interests in the region in Sri Lanka, which has played a role in how Tamil people and other minorities in the country have come to Australia to begin with. And that's something that people aren't aware of as to how we are all implicated. And that's something I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions that we try to challenge in the show. And there's also, I think Jay said it best before, where he had like an inherent trust in government
1: and politicians. Mm. And um,
2: I think S- how how do you feel about may- that? Maybe now? not
1: politicians, <laughs> but maybe just systems. I was like, systems should work, and if if something is not working, in the system, like people would want to make it better and would make it better, and the process is just the series is. Like, made me realize that the systems are really almost set up for people to fail. And there's not a whole lot of incentive to change it for the people who are able to change it.
3: Like, for example, when asylum seeker applications are processed and assessed, they're assessed against particular country information reports um, in this situation, in Sri Lanka. And these reports are created by DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. They outline things like geography and politics and conflict in the country, but they're significantly influenced by the government of the time and what that particular government wants out of the relationships with that country. And so they're quite biased and don't actually portray what the lived reality of being in those countries is like. And you see that with the country information reports on Sri Lanka, and they've been subject to a lot of criticism by various um, including international courts, as well as um, human rights advocacy groups and legal justice groups in Australia.
2: A faith in those systems, I guess it's asking like, what are the values and structures that they are trying to uphold and I guess in a settler colony such as Australia that brings up a lot of kind of conflict query as well and the way that offshore processing works in this country is an extension of a lot of the violence that's occurring within the colony as well and you know we're talking about policing of borders and who gets to do this and why arbitrary ways of surveillance and these unjust rules of citizenship, like who gets to determine this and how, and coming towards the end of this conversation, or what responsibilities do we have in hearing these stories?
3: The reality is that there are countless of other asylum seekers who are still living in uncertainty, although Priya and Nadesa Nadesa Lingams have received permanent residency a lot of other people still in uncertain situations and i think people have this uh, false belief that because we have a different government who granted them this permanent residency that somehow the situation is better but the reality is that labor has recommitted its commitment to offshore processing and i think we want people to be much more critical of government and policies and how they vote this election in 2022 Made it very clear that, it elections do do matter, although the parties may not seem that different, um, and it actually did improve the livelihood of this particular family. And so, uh, I I know some people have the philosophy that you know, why participate in these horrific, so-called democratic systems? But the reality is they do improve lives. So we need to kind of examine what is being done to vulnerable people in our name and make sure that we are much more critical in how we engage in that process as much as we can within the frameworks that are available to us. And I think secondly, what we also want people to understand is that the movement of people does not stop, has not stopped and will increase in the coming years due to climate change and conflict and the economic disparity that we're seeing now. Um, And there are entire industries that are profiting off of this that are lobbying governments to in at very particular policies that, that are harmful to these vulnerable populations. And so people need to remain vigilant in what they're being told and understand how they may be implicated and how asylum seekers are being commodified by these industries.
2: What do you hope people would get out of listening to this series?
1: I'm going to keep my answer shorter. Answer. <laughs> um, I, I hope empathy. And I think the only way that like governments can get away with what they're doing is when we stop seeing the people who are in these situations as people and we start fearing them for whatever reason. But if we actually just like realize they're humans who just want to have a life and don't want to be fleeing war, persecution, torture, rape like every day, I think we'd probably be a much better country. Say how are you again? Apri suham, apri suham, yeah. Nalasuham, apri suham, nalasuham. Does I do I need inflection? Uh,
3: no, it's not as complicated as Chinese.
1: Okay, but if it's a rabbit. question, does it need to go up or down or something? Apri suham, apri suham, yeah, <coughs> It's pretty adorable. Thank you. It's the tenth of June, twenty twenty-two. Tanesh and I are at Brisbane Airport nervously waiting to meet Priya, Nadez, Kopika, and Theronika in person for the first time. I've just learned one phrase. Hello! Nice to meet you!
3: This family, also referred to as the Nadez the Muruguppins, or simply the Belawila family, they've been through a lot. Until a week ago, They have been in detention for over four years. They faced two attempted deportations, health issues and multiple medical evacuations. A petition to let them return home to Bilawila received almost 600,000 signatures of support. At the same time, Bilawila, this rural town from central Queensland, was plucked from obscurity and became a lightning rod of conversation on asylum seekers. And it's from here that a community campaign has been tirelessly operating for over four years.
1: 1,558 days after the Nadezalingam family were snatched from their home in Bilawila, we're at the same airport as them, about to join them on their journey home.
3: Hello, how are you? Good. How, are you excited for your flight? Yes. Yes, yeah. how are you feeling? Mm, happy. Happy? But the way they've always been discussed in the media is that they're a good family who've always contributed to the Biloela community. Nardes, who uh, worked at the local meatworks in Biloela. We have
1: Priya, who volunteered at St Vincent de Paul. Or that they're not actually genuine refugees. It's completely without merit in terms of their claim to be refugees. But
3: there's so much more to their story than this.
1: And the more we dug into it, the more questions we had. Like, why did both political parties use them as a campaign platform? With billions of dollars going into detention centres, how did they get so sick under government care? Were the family actually treated appropriately? How was Australia involved in the war that Priya and Nadez fled from? And is our government really telling us the truth?
3: Because maybe this story isn't all that you think
1: it is. You, you have been told a lie. To
0: stop the deportation of the Tunnel family. Let them in! Let them stay!
1: Protecting Australia's borders.
3: Hypocrisy. Detained on Christmas Island. United Nations Convention on Refugees. This
1: is our country. We are a generous, open hearted people. I'm Jay Uri. I'm Tanesh, the Leonard Raja. This is Episode 1 The Birth Lottery.
2: Hi, my name is Annika and I'm five years old. Uh, hello, my name is Kopika and I'm
0: seven years old. Yeah, my name is Selinga. My name is uh Bria.
3: Uh what is your favorite TV show?
0: Gigi. Um, YouTube.
1: YouTube. Are you just saying that because your sister likes it too? Yeah, yes, she
2: likes
3: the copy for everything, <coughs> even with the hairstyle. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> what are your hobbies?
0: Me like in the cooking, me play in the cards. What card game do you play? Rummy. Oh, okay.
1: I can play some Rummy.
0: My hobby reading books. Uh, I'm listening in the music. Uh,
3: what kind of music? Tamil song. Can you sing? Uh, No, I'm only listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that's the Nadezelingham family, and we got them to speak in English for this introduction, but for everything else, we spoke to them in their first language, Tamil, so you'll hear them with an English translation. But Snesh, this story is just so big. Where should we start? I mean...
3: Like, a lot has happened to them in Sri Lanka, but I think what may surprise people is how our government processes and treats asylum seekers from the moment they arrive. For Nades, it's 2012, and for Priya it's 2013, when they land on Christmas Island and Cocos Islands respectively.
1: These are remote islands, kind of far from Australia, but they're still controlled by the Australian government. And within a couple of days of arriving, they both have their first interview. The officers asked us to tell them
4: what our problems were in our country in 10 minutes.
0: When we got off the boat, our mind was all over the place. We were beaten and battered. We had no food for a month and no water for 15 days. We had no sleep. Everything we were asked in those three days, whatever we said, we had no memory of. Christmas Island. Once
4: I arrived on Christmas Island, we were put into what looked like tents with bunk beds on top of each other. We couldn't get to sleep. The rooms and the beds felt like they were all moving, just like the boat we arrived on.
0: I was scared as they started to deport people. No one knew, but lots of people were moved at 5am by SERCO guards with their belongings in black garbage bags. After 10 or 15 days of seeing many people being sent back, we started to lose sleep and started to feel scared.
3: Hold up, who are these Circo guards? So Serco is this company that's contracted by a government to help run these sorts of services, like transporting asylum seekers and operating detention centres.
1: Okay, second question. How could Australia send people back that quickly? Like if their claims are denied, shouldn't they at least be reviewed?
3: So, Australia has an obligation to not send people back to danger, called non-refoulement obligations under the 1951 Refugee Convention. This applies to anyone seeking protection who arrives on any territory that we own, like Christmas Island. Now, what happens is that in October 2012, a new process is introduced, where asylum seekers would be asked a few questions as soon as they arrive. So, this process would apply to Priya, right? Yep, because she arrived in February 2013. In a brief interview shortly after their arrival, a person needs to raise a red flag by saying they want to seek asylum because they fear persecution, and the interviewing officer needs to believe them. If they don't, they can be screened out and deported. That's all the assessment they get? That is it. But the UNHCR says all of these people need their cases properly assessed. They call this out as unfair. Even the Department of Immigration's own lawyers advise against this process. Australia claims it's still upholding its non-refoulement obligations. A form of it is still being used today, and it's why many of the people that Priya arrived with were deported almost instantly. Now, despite Priya's fears of being sent back, she's screened in. She stays on Christmas Island for five and a half months, before being moved to a different centre in Darwin for another four months. After all of this, she's finally released to Sydney. the four.
0: Centrelink gave me $420 or $450 a week. I had to manage rent, electricity, water and my food. It was just enough. I was not allowed to work. Because I had overcome these adversities, I believed that I would have a good future and a safe life ahead. I convinced myself to be positive and forget the past.
1: Wait, but what's happening with Nadez? Okay. So
3: Nadeus is on Christmas Island for a few months before he's flown to WIPA in North Queensland. He then makes his way to Sydney with some of the people he met at that detention centre.
1: Ah, so he's in the big smoke now. And he's looking for work.
4: We went everywhere searching for work. On foot, on the train. We didn't just sit around doing nothing. We tried, but we never got a job. Some other boys who would come with us were living in Biloela and working in a factory. So they said there is work in this factory. There was also a job at Woolworths as a trolley boy in Biloela because one of the boys was leaving that job. Right, so that's how he ends up in Biloela.
3: Yep, and Nadez got that job as a trolley
4: boy and he also got a job at T's Meatworks. So I would start that job at 5.30, 6 in the morning and finish at 3.30. Then I would start my trolley shift at 4pm and finish at 9pm. This is how I lived in Biloela. I was happy.
1: But JB, what's a Meatworks? It's like a place where they process the animal from like the whole cow into all those individual cuts, like the rump, the tri-tip, the short rib, and they distribute it to supermarkets or wholesalers or to export. There's actually a job ad for the one in Bilawila, if you're interested. Um,
3: They're looking for experienced boners and slicers. That's definitely not me. My hands are not made from manual labor.
1: They're too delicate. Too delicate. (laughs) Okay, so we have Nadez in Bilawila, but Priya is in Sydney. How did they meet? The Tamil network. I mean, I know there's a Malaysian-Chinese network, but like, is the Tamil network a thing?
3: Yes. Have you seen Netflix's Indian matchmaking? Nope. It's similar. Um, Nadez had his own matchmaking service, not in his aunties, but with his friends. Should I add it to the watch list?
4: No. (laughs) (laughs) You should definitely not add it to the watch list. Someone I know sent a picture of Priya to another boy I was living with. They just said, we found a girl. All you need to do is get ready, and they just went off to work. I don't know anything about Priya. I just knew her name. All I'd been told is that they had found a girl for me to marry. I said, are you playing games? I didn't know who this person was. I'd not seen any photos or were given any details, and they asked me to get ready for a wedding. What did they want me to do? Lose my mind trying to figure this all out until the next week when I would see my friend again? Him and his housemates worked different shifts, so they didn't actually see each other during the week. I thought it may have been a joke, so I just left it. It was only the following week when I saw photos and got more details that I took it more seriously. I got the phone number and spoke to Priya's family and once I got their approval, I then spoke to my family and told them I was going to marry her. Wait, how did his housemates find Priya? Through this friend of Priya's from when she was in detention.
0: This friend was like, you're living alone, and started speaking to her family members to arrange a marriage. She met Nadez at a wedding through a friend, so when she called me to talk about marrying Nadez, I had no intention of doing so and said no at first.
1: Priya said no?
3: But this auntie was persistent. She gets one of her friends to call Priya.
0: The auntie was like, I hear you are saying no to a wedding. Give me your mother's phone number. There is no use talking to you. I couldn't speak back to this auntie, so I gave her my mother's number. The two of them spoke, and then they also spoke to Nadeza's family, and it was arranged.
1: Wait, why couldn't Priya speak back against this auntie? In
3: Tamil culture, a significant amount of respect is given to elders and parents. Generally, when you're told to do something by your elder, you do it. Even Priya's mum tells her.
0: You must get married. You cannot live alone without any support. I didn't know what else to say to her, so I said, OK, Amma. I knew the visa situation, I knew everything, but it was difficult to explain all of these to my mother. She just wanted me to have someone. So I said, OK.
3: At the time, Priya
4: didn't even have a phone that could show photos, but...
0: They said to marry him, so I said yes. When
4: I first spoke to Priya, Priya's family had taken our astrology charts to someone to check if we were compatible. We were still waiting for them to come back with the news. What are these astrological charts?
3: It's like star sign marriage compatibility, but for Tamil people. It's called Tirumannapurutam, where essentially you check the compatibility of your birth charts to see if your marriage will be prosperous.
0: So at the time, I didn't want to speak in case the charts didn't match. It would make it harder for the both of us.
3: Priya didn't want the potential for a heartbreak if the charts didn't align. But Nadees didn't care. See, he didn't think marriage was on the cards at all. So when this
4: opportunity arose... He saw it as a sign. But I had decided to marry Priya regardless of what the charts say. It was fate that she came into my life.
0: As long as we liked each other and were willing to marry, I was happy to speak to Nadez. It didn't matter what the chart said.
4: I said, regardless of whether we are compatible or not, I've decided to marry you.
0: He agreed to that, and that is how we started speaking. I was six months older than Nadez, and in our culture, it's tradition for men to marry a younger woman. So I explained this to him. If you still want to go ahead, that's great. He said he wanted me to come to Bila I was ready to go anywhere with him.
2: That is all for Race Matters this week. My name is Shrika Hallaludin. Thank you so much to our guests, Jay Ui and Tanesh Dilandarajan, for allowing us to kind of be behind the scenes of this vital storytelling process, and to the Nada Singhalam family who allowed for us to share their story through the Race Matters platform in order to shed light on the violent injustices that continue across our offshore and asylum seeking processes. If you want to learn more about the series or listen back to this conversation or even learn more about the systems that we're unpacking, you can head to our show notes at fbiradio.com slash Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race
4: matters. Race matters. Race matters.
1: Race matters. Race matters.